the West Coast, the East Coast, and deep in the heart of Texas, it's the Geek at Arms podcast with Brian, Mike, and James. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the Geek at Arms podcast, a podcast about three guys who share a lot of geeky hobbies and also a love for the Lord our God. I'm James, and hanging out with me, as always, are my good friends, Brian and Mike. Brian, how are you doing today, my friend? I am doing pretty okay. Pretty not, okay. Not stellar, but everything is is kind of on the level right now. Glad to hear it. Mike, how about you? Good, sir. I am feeling really good. So Good. Yeah. Probably be talking a little about, about maybe why during the geek out, but um I'm you know, I'm also just really excited to be uh with you guys today and talking about what we're talking about today. So same. Yay. It's been a while. It took us a little while to to get this one going. Life has happened. A lot of life. Yeah. I'm also kind of glad that it did take us a while because I, in some sense, it allowed me a little bit more rewatch time and research time on the subject, which I really feel is is going to help us out in the long run. Speaking of rewatching, uh, to do a quick shout out to our last episode, either one of you two watch How to Train Your Dragons 2? I did. How did you enjoy that? Uh, I liked it quite a lot. Um, there were a couple of places where it's like, I, I wanted it to have gone a different direction, but uh, but I could see what they were after, what they were going for. the The pain of losing the the connection to now I've suddenly forgotten the dragon's name. Toothless. Toothless was was strong. I I wish that there had been a little bit more time spent with it. That it happened earlier in the film. How about you, Mike? Were you able to check it out yet? I found out through a little bit of research that it wasn't actually about zombie dragons, and I felt so betrayed that I was just done with the franchise. <laughs> fair. Completely fair. I, I haven't made it there yet. Really hoping someone was going to ask me how I'm doing. How are you <laughs> doing, James? Uh, I'm healing. Uh, I've been a little slow lately because about two and a half weeks ago, I was walking down some stairs, uh, slippery stairs, slipped uh, took the last five or six of them in the air and i i things kind of went slow-mo for a half second and i had a choice am i going to take this on my face or on my feet and i chose what my did feet you choose okay chose the feet more specifically my heels and more specifically my right heel oh uh, that's a lot of energy focused on one place yeah, mm-hmm. well, it was about, I'd say, it was on both heels, more like 80-20, 80% on the right, 20% on the left. And thankfully, I was able to roll uh, before I went down another smaller flight of stairs. Oh, shoot. Um, yeah, so I bounced back up and then went right back down because my right foot was completely numb. And I have been healing from that. Okay. Um, it bruised up really nice, too. It bruised and swelled up. Uh, I did go to the doctor, and he just told me it's a bruised heel. Okay, and that's not good, but better than the well, alternative. I wouldn't say bruised. Bruised heel, it was ba- crush damage is what happened to me. So I think yeah. I take uh, I take 3D6 plus a movement modifier, um, <laughs> which I've been feeling that movement modifier. I've been walking around. I've been, I've been limpy and gimpy uh, for the past couple of weeks. But James, disadvantage. I am at disadvantage. I'm going to have to roll again. It has, yeah, I was really worried because when you, when you start talking about like crush damage and, and bruising and swelling, I'm like, okay, if I like actually hurt this thing severely and, and he goes, oh, no, no, no. See, the your heel is built. 
to mm-hmm. to to take this type of punishment. The only way you'd we'd be really concerned is if you jumped off a second story building. <laughs> like, okay then. Don't you shame that. my other hobby. <laughs> <laughs> you just shout parkour before you do it. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Which actually means bruised spleen in French, I found out. <laughs> no, it does not. But anyway. I'm sure there's someone going, weed, that sounds right. <laughs> but it's just going to take time to completely heal up. It's one of those that it's not serious enough to need like surgery or like a splint or anything but it's bad enough that it can take like four or more weeks to heal up and Mm -hmm. thankfully he also gave me a prescription for painkillers slash anti-inflammatory gotcha yeah those bone bruises can do can do a number on you so well i'm glad he did because i had been taking like ibuprofen pretty steadily for a week until finally the uh the knot in my stomach told me you're not going to take that anymore. Yeah. yeah. That'll happen pretty fast. Mm-hmm. So, uh, recovering from that, apparently I've reached that age. Now I have to think twice before going downstairs. <laughs> yeah. I was leaving work and for the first time ever, I'm like, you know, that elevator starting to look pretty good. <laughs> yeah. I, I actually took a shot to the face, uh, last week and a half ago, I guess. Ooh, what myself. Happened? Well, uh, apparently, in addition to all my other maladies, I now get to add something called orthostatic hypotension to the list, which is that thing where if you stand up suddenly, you get dizzy. Oh, yeah. And I got extremely dizzy and fainted. It's like, oh, I'm feeling a little wobbly. And the next thing I know, there's a loud noise and my face hurts. So when you say you took a shot to the face, that shot was the ground. Yes. Uh, and I had a I had a nice uh, ugly looking rug burn on my forehead for a while. Fortunately, I was at uh, uh, Yolanda and Christian's place when it happened, so there were people there to take care of me. Actually, uh, I would think that'd be more dangerous because the cats would have been looking at you, thinking if he's on the ground for two more minutes, he's fair game. <laughs> uh, that that cat was in very poor condition. Actually, uh, sadly, that cat died uh, oh, last no. week. They they loved that cat a lot. And it'd been a long time. I mean, she was she was sick for a while. I actually had to cut that visit short because the cat took a downturn and they just wanted to to spend time caring for her. That makes sense. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, fortunately, I was there and I had them to, you know, give me uh, first first aid, first of all. And also, you know, a little bit of a uh, what's what's the phrase I'm looking for? Reality check on. No, Brian, you're not dying. You just fainted. Here, let me Google this for you and make sure. So, because if I'd been at, at home by myself, I'd have totally panicked. Mm-hmm. I'm glad she was there to give a reality check and also yeah. to help. So I need to I need to get up on the exercise. I got a standing desk now, so I'm not going to be sitting all Ooh. day all the time. Yeah, is it a stand desk or is it a sit stand transitional? It's a sit stand tra- transitional oh. electric. Yeah, I am. I am so about the sit stand transitional. It like really helps with my my hamstring issues. I'm like, here we are, the Geeked Arms podcast, talking about how our aging bodies are failing us. Hooray! <laughs> That's uh, kind of organ recital. That's kind of what the beginning of this show has turned into. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to this week's maladies. <laughs> yeah, I should probably call my sister and let her know that that happened before she hears about it for the first time on the podcast and gets mad at me. You're going to get such a phone call. <laughs> you almost <laughs> die and I find out through your stupid podcast. 
Sorry, Danica. <laughs> All right. Well, before any more parts of us fall off or just becomes a, an advertisement on why you should never use WebMD, um, <laughs> let's get on to Geek Out. Who wants to go first this episode? Ooh, can I go first? Can I go first? Take it away, Mike. Mike. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, this week's Geek Out is fundamentally, if nothing else, about not only just a celebration of geekdom, but also trying to make James jealous. Um, because <laughs> while I was on vacation traveling up the Cape, uh, the Cape is a wonderful place in Massachusetts. We have sharks in the water, coronavirus on the land, triple E in the mosquitoes in the air. I mean, why not go there to die? Anyway, um, <laughs> As I got to we tell you, my jealousy is really getting high right now. Let you me tell have you. murder hornets. Well, as we were, I mean, to just to just to cap off all the danger, like there was a sign that said sword tacos. And I'm like, yes, <laughs> we're eating those. And we did. And I have eaten a sword taco and you have not. And therefore, I am the superior swordsman. <laughs> <laughs> but how was it going down? It's kind of hard on the teeth. Oh my yeah. gosh. No, <laughs> actually it was one of the best tacos I've ever had. It was what it was. It was swordfish uh, since okay. you're right there on the water. So it's, yeah, it's swordfish tacos. Like there are fish tacos, but these weren't fried. These are like swordfish steaks that were like cut and then seasoned mm. in some Ooh. mysterious sauce that was drizzled on them along with pickled onions and uh, jalapenos and, um, did I mention the sauce that was amazing and also like a like a fresh salsa on top? And it was the best darn taco I've ever had. So I'm a fan. <laughs> Sword tacos, the official food of Geek at Arms. <laughs> <laughs> Pictures to be posted later. Um, which, which surprises absolutely no one who's listened to more than two episodes. <laughs> <laughs> I love swords. I love food. This is happening. It was either that or toe frames. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think second on the let's make James jealous is uh, last is night. Yeah. I mean, no, that's that's what this geek out is about. Let's be real. Um <laughs> I'm seeing this becoming a new segment of the show. First, we're going to do Geek Out, and then to the future. And finally, let's make James jealous. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, seriously. Um, last night, I had an absolutely fabulous time uh, with the guys at City on a Hill. Uh, because uh, what Ryan had done is he had put out a call and just kind of asking uh, the uh, asking our friend uh, Mike Perna, uh, you know, the, the sitting Archduke of Christian gaming nerddom and had said, hey, do you know anybody who runs Numenera? And Mike Perna was oh, like, yeah, huh, do, do I? I? <laughs> and it turned into a one shot where uh, Mike Perna was running a Numenera game. And it was just fantastic. Uh, if you're not familiar with Numenera, it's the far future science fantasy that far future science fantasy considers far future science fantasy. And I, I knew nothing about this, but thanks to thanks to Mike and you know his appearance on MinMax and mm -hmm. walking us through the tutorial component of his game, it was just an amazing time where everyone got their time to shine. And it was really amazing for me because I, 
I didn't know anything about the system. And so Mike said, hey, do you guys want to make your own characters? Or do you want me to make a character for you? And I'm like, I, dude, I do not know this thing. And I didn't say this, but like, I super don't have the bandwidth right now. Please just make whatever character you think will fit in. And he made me a very talky-talky, persuady, charming guy that also works miracles of healing. Hmm. And I'm like, oh, wow, this is hitting me where I, this is really what I want to do right now. And then I looked at his weapons list and it's a rapier and dagger. And I'm like, I love you, you, you wonderful, wonderful man. That was his audience. You get me. You really get me. <laughs> I felt like that. Yeah. Um, and it was, I don't want to spoil anything, but there were just a few moments where, where Mike was looking at us I'm like, wait a minute, I have this ability. And it can do this, right? And we can use this to just bypass that, right? And he's like, uh, uh, honestly, I did not see that coming. <laughs> <laughs> and there were a few of those moments where it's like, okay, here's the, here is this coming up. And so he's like, wait a minute, here's this idea. <laughs> can we just this? And I was like, wow, yeah, I guess that just happened. And so I... I don't know if this is going to be out already when this episode comes out, but do check out City on a Hill for Mike Perna's Numenera game. It was fantastic. Great GM, wonderful host, Ryan, great guy, and, and, and just a fabulous group to play with. See, Mike talked up the Numenera game and the, and the Cypher system back when he was on the show in Geek at Arms episode right. 24. Because that was right after the Kickstarter, wasn't it? Yes, and listening to his interview as of this moment, the latest episode of Min Max, I'm man enough to admit when I'm jealous. <laughs> I am. Because the whole concept of like, you know, we're currently in the first age of man or the first age of this planet. And Numenera takes place like after the ninth age where technology has progressed to the point that it's basically magic. That just sounds like so much fun. I look forward to the day that... Hopefully, I can either sit across from the table or across from the video screen from Mike Perna for one of his games. I mean, it just sounds like an absolute blast. Well, and I'll say that James isn't the only one that's jealous. And when Mike uh, put out his his call for for players, I'm just like everything in me was restraining myself because I saw that you were already on the list. I'm like, and and Ryan's had me on that show for like two other three other things. I shouldn't be greedy, but I really, really want to play in that game, but I restrained <laughs> myself. It was physically painful to do so. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't want to rub it in, but I also do want to say it was just a fantastic group. Just really kind of the social dynamics worked out so amazingly that it was, uh, it was just a phenomenal experience to be a part of. Awesome. Very cool. Also, uh, gaming-related, uh, have either of you heard of a game called Sleeping Gods? No. Neither have I. It was a Kickstarter a while back. Uh, it's it's kind of a campaign-in-a-box sort of thing. It's It's got the components of a board game, but it's not a board game. I mean, it is a board game, but it's it's more than a board game. It's a, I think they say, 1 to 20-hour experience to to explore this world. The idea is that you are uh, are you're on a ship in the 1920s, I believe, on its way from 
Hong Kong to New York and you are caught up in some sort of uh, otherworldly experience where you're transported to this group of islands in a realm where magic and mystery and and gods are very real and you are told that you must wake the gods in order for them to send you home and so it has this this very um I, I suppose Voyage of the Dawn Treader and Odyssey-esque feel where you're on this steamship trying to, or diesel ship, what are the, 1920s. Uh, yeah, so it'd be, a, you know, a, a diesel ship to try to find these artifacts and these totems that you need in order to complete your task of getting home. But there's a huge, thick, spiral-bound booklet of experiences that you can have on all these many, many islands as you're flipping through this flip book of the world map. Hmm. And so each location you go to is like, well, item 53. Well, look at island 53 in your book and you have 53.12357 that are different encounters that you can have depending on what quests you've gathered, what quests you've completed and what items you've gathered along the way. So... It has a very open world exploration type feel with a crunchy but elegant combat system that makes you feel challenged, but doesn't make you feel bogged down when you're in either individual combat or when you're in uh, ship challenges or crew challenges. And uh, it's, it's really interesting in that uh, when you have skill checks, the thing that you want to do can always happen. But if you fail, you do the thing. You know, like if you like if something requires, say, you know, a cunning of six, if you're only able to muster a cunning of four, the thing that you wanted to do happens, but also you have a cost, whether that be your ship takes damage or your character takes damage or you are afraid or you take strain. So there's there's always a way forward. You can never get yourself cornered where you can't get out of a situation. It's just how much does it cost for these things mm -hmm. to happen? And we've been playing it on weekends and it's, it's, it's been an amazing experience and it's been a great way for me and my friends to, uh, to try to explore this, this Odyssey-esque world. So uh, you can pre-order copies of it. It's not on store shelves, but it's a huge, it's a, it's pricey, but it's a huge campaign in a box, and I, I highly recommend. I like it when our geek outs run kind of, well, not so much parallel, but similar, because I recently also kickstarted a game called The Dueling Fops of Vendemir. <laughs> it's a new game put out by known game designer Greg Stoltze. It is a no-GM procedurally generated tabletop role-playing game. Ooh. All about these spoiled, aristocratic, overly privileged, entitled, hyper-violent people. Just the best people, you know. They're just, <laughs> they're great. Without going too deep into it, it's very simple. There are four stats that you base your roles off of. Foppish, serious, dualist, and aristocrat. I'm just imagining this is, I'm foppish, I'm angry, and I, I'm armed. <laughs> so while I was reading about the game, I was thinking a friend on the SCA pointed it out to me. 
And I'm like, oh, this sounds like so much fun, but I really do not need to be kickstarting anything else right now. And then I read it's going to be released as a PDF and it only costs $10. And yes, I'm hitting the back button so hard right now. <laughs> oh, wow. That sounds a lot more moderate than what I did with the Avatar RPG. Okay, anyway. <laughs> so I didn't mean to jump into your geek out, but I just wanted to share that uh, I'm looking forward to getting that PDF, hopefully in uh, January, which is weird to say is not that far off. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing is that these GM-less systems that offer the ability to scratch that RPG itch without mm -hmm. having to have all the super prep really mm -hmm. is an appealing opportunity. Um, yeah. Because who doesn't love the narrative experience with your friends? And it's sometimes it's hard to get that that prep together uh, or to find somebody who wants to GM long term. So this is these are great opportunities. Yeah. The final thing on my geek out is have either of you seen the Masters of the Universe TV show? Oh, on Netflix? Yes. Yes. Okay. I have not. Okay. Um, so just as a warning to listeners, uh, if you haven't seen this and you don't want it spoiled, like it is if you haven't had it spoiled already, it's been out for like a month or two since the time we've been recording, um, there's going to be a spoiler. So you might want to skip forward a bit till you hear uh, James's voice. If you've listened to this podcast and have not watched it yet, are you really listening to the right podcasts? I mean, well, like on some level, like at first when it says Masters of the Universe, I was really kind of skeptical because I'm like, okay, you either need to go full out one way or the other, go full on story centric and make this fundamentally about the story or make it such a cash grab catastrophe that you don't have to take it seriously. Um, like, please, <laughs> please do one of those things. Like, yeah. Really, really great. Really, really awful. Nothing in the middle. That's that's what we're aiming for. I was expecting the the nostalgia cash grab. But when I read that it was being held by Kevin Smith, I held out a little bit of hope. Yeah, he he understands geek properties and he does like story. So he it, when I saw his name attached to it, I was like, oh, that's a thing. Um, of course, I didn't see his name attached to it until episode two when I was actually really watching. I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Because <laughs> um, here's where the serious spoiler alert, like we told you, but now it's happening. Um, the fact that it's called Masters of the Universe and not He-Man and the Masters of the Universe is telling because this is this is really about a post-He-Man world. Um when I was when I was watching this, is my my youngest said, "Okay, it's going to be awful. Let's turn this on." And we watched the first episode, and it's like, "Okay, yeah, this is showing us that they understand the property, that they knew what what the legacy was, and they made it like super kind of cheesy at the start." And then there was a point in which um, Moss Man is standing up to Skeletor, and Skeletor just torches moss man and he's he just, dead he nukes him and i was looking at my family and i said that was bold and they're, they're like what why and i'm like no that was a toy that was a toy that i loved for no real reason other than this was you know part of my childhood and they mm -hmm. just offed him and then uh mark hamill yes as skeletor yes goes, like let this be our final battle i'm like oh my gosh they just warned us they're gonna kill them both and yeah. like 
No. And then they did. My jaw dropped when a certain moment came and Skeletor, wheezing and coughing up blood, says, you finally used that sword the way it was meant to be used. Yeah. It's like, whoa. Yeah. I mean... And, you know, I really had to respect the series that they were like, okay, if you're willing to kill off both He-Man and Skeletor, then I'm really interested in what you're doing with this property. And season one was really Tila's story. Mm-hmm. And I thought that was fant- that was a fantastic call. And, and what do you do in a, oh no, magic is dying, post-He-Man, post-Skeletor world? I was kind of disappointed in the season finale that they felt the need to bring both of them back. Um, I I was really hoping that once they once they got to their version of heaven and like, oh, Prince Adam is here. <laughs> I'm still not over you lying to me for how long of our lives. And when he said, <laughs> oh, I'll come back with you. I really wanted her to just shove him back into heaven and say, no, I, I got I had to deal with this once. I've dealt with it. You don't. This is no longer. This is no longer about you. You're done. But mm-hmm. that I I would love to have seen that moment. But you know we got something else, which is fine. Besides what they did with Tila's story, how they treated the characters of Evil Lynn, making her much more three dimensional, mm-hmm. and especially Orko. Yeah. Or, uh, they they took him from literally a floating punching bag yep to someone with heart and that you really really I wanted can, him you, to have you, more you screen can, time yeah you identify with him and when his big moment comes it's it's such an emotional gut punch yeah so i will i tune in for season 2 i don't know i thought season one, like season 1 up until like the last few minutes of season one i was like yeah this is i'm super on about this the ending did not surprise me though because was it a bold direction they took did they bring back he-man did they leave us on a humongous cliffhanger at the end though yeah but he's for all intents and purposes he's still the face of the franchise so yeah i i don't see them going so bold as to take him out permanently i might be wrong though I might be wrong, and I'll, I'll be pleasantly surprised if I am. I can tell you this, of all the characters who stay and of those who don't survive, I told myself, okay, if Man-at-Arms bites it, I'm out. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm dropping it right now. Yeah. I don't know. I think it would have been interesting to see to see Tila being the next champion. Like, okay, yeah. you're the next one who summons the power of Grayskull. Because um, they established that women have done it yep. in the Eternian heaven. Yep. So... We never did get her name, did we? Or did we? Maybe we did. I don't know. I don't recall. Yeah. I mean, her lines were not all that memorable. They were in some, like, we had the subtitles on and it says, speaking alien language. I'm like, that's (laughs) fantastic. (laughs) But yeah, I thought, I thought it was an interesting experience. I'd, I'd. Yeah, I, I'd recommend uh, checking out, just seeing seeing how they navigate the post-He-Man world in that first season. Agreed. And that'll well, wrap think... up my geek out. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, uh, you go right ahead. I was just going to say that'll wrap up my geek out. 
but if you've got <laughs> if you got he-man comments then come nope on. i am he-maned out for right now so <laughs> we'll go from one fantasy swordsman to the next in the last episode i talked about that i had jumped back into the witcher books and at that time i was just beginning to read book two i am now getting very close to finishing up book seven wow i did not know they wrote that many yeah apparently there's one more after this one so i wasn't aware as well but i realized okay i'm in for the long haul apparently but thankfully, Joy read them right along with me, so I could justify, you know, the purchases on my Kindle. <laughs> and they're not that expensive. They're not small books. They're not like they're not huge either. They're not like Tad Williams size novels. Um, very few things are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but they're not little novellas either. I'd say they're about 300, 400 pages. So, you know, typical length. But I've just been grinding through them. Like, I want to see where the story goes and what happens to these characters, especially because I already got emotionally attached to these characters after having played The Witcher 3. And uh, these books have just been really enjoyable. Book one, the storytelling is a little disjointed, but it gets much better from book two on. Yeah, practice makes perfect, right? It, it does. <laughs> and uh, I would recommend them to anyone without meaning to. A lot of what I've been focused on geek-wise has kind of turned to The Witcher. It's just I've been encountering things. Like not long ago, I was checking out what games were for sale on Xbox, and they had The Witcher 2, and it was on sale for 3 bucks. I'm like, okay, $3. I'll grab it. I'll play it when I can. That and sounds like a purchase that's hard to go wrong. Yeah, mm-hmm. played it a bit. And like it's it's an older generation game, but it's still really good looking and it's been very enjoyable. The voice acting has been fantastic. I mean, if if you're looking for somebody to look down on older generation of games, you're talking <laughs> to the wrong dude. I still play Mega Man 2. So. How is the voice acting in Mega Man 2, by the way? I don't need this from you, James. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of enjoyable RPGs, which we've done a lot already in this podcast... Just on a whim, I thought I would look up to see if anyone ever made one for the Witcher universe. And I I was expecting to find like someone had adapted it from GURPS or something or just Roll20 and written their own rules out into a PDF. But no, uh, lo and behold, there is an official Witcher RPG book and several expansions for it. Oh, no way. Uh, Yeah, from Talsorian Games came out a few years ago and it takes a lot of its content from both the games and the books and from what i've read so far it's got really decent reviews so one day i might check it out uh the core rule book goes for under 40 bucks on amazon so that's not horrible i mean that's not horrible for 1998 so i mean <laughs> core rule books have been i mean they're small runs. They're usually high production value. To get one for between fifty and seventy-five dollars is pretty is pretty commonplace these days. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like I said, there are uh, a lot of expansions for it: uh, Lords and Lands expansion, a DM screen, a Book of Tales, a Witcher's Journal, Rise of the Witcher. So uh, maybe one day I'll get it. I'll leaf through it and dream about the day I can actually play at a table. You know, with friends around again. Yeah, there's that. But moving on, recently, Joy and I have actually had the opportunity to go see movies. 
the great thing about having family move down here is that we have that ability now to just I won't say dump the kids, but I really do mean <laughs> dump the kids. Recently, Joy and I celebrated our 17th wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you. And thankfully, my parents very kindly watched the kids. So we actually spent a day together. And we ended it by going to go see the Ryan Reynolds movie, Free Guy. Oh, how was that? It was Ryan Reynolds as his Ryan Reynoldiest. <laughs> that's was, what I'm here for. Yeah, it, it was very enjoyable. It's basically PG Deadpool without the red suit. Does not compute. <laughs> it's the uh, matrix it's, as a comedy yeah see it's one of those things that i looked at i'm like this looks like a fantastic concept i i would gladly watch 28 minutes of that <laughs> <laughs> it was enjoyable as a video game movie concept has not always translated to the screen very well and we've seen several examples of this in the past this one was fun. The acting was great. Ryan Reynolds stood out. Taika Watiti? Wa- Taika Watiti. Wa- Taika Watiti. He plays the oh my uh, the movie's antagonist, and he's just so much fun to watch. I enjoyed it. And it's always fun to watch Ryan Reynolds just be himself. I mean, just you can, you can tell when he's just kind of ad-libbing stuff. <laughs> like, he takes a, a lick of bubblegum ice cream, and he's like... <gasps> It's like my tongue had a baby with a sunset. <laughs> I'm like, I wonder how many takes they had to do with that. <laughs> that was the first take. That probably was. Uh, uh, so I'd recommend I mean, it. It was I, enjoyable. I, I I really need to back up. You, I was going to let it slide. And I said, I'm not going to let it slide. When you said that video game to movie adaptations tend to, and then you, you started to say something negative and I absolutely have to defend Super Mario Brothers is, oh, wait, gosh. no, hold on. I have to defend no, retro, no, no. retro rewind podcast as labeling Super Mario Brothers as a tragic film. Yeah. That's what I meant to say. All right. Oh, fantastic. Okay, gotcha. Moving All right. on. All right. <laughs> Moving on. I think they finally got it right when they started not adapting actual video games, but uh, like Wreck-It Ralph. Like, okay, we're just going to ignore video game as a framework, but we're not going to try and make a video game into a movie. Right. That works. Yeah. Um, the last thing I'll say about Free Guy is that somehow Ryan Reynolds, he decided to do a little movie review of it as Deadpool <laughs> sitting on a couch next to Korg from <laughs> Thor Ragnarok. And Korg, of course, being voiced by Taika Waititi. I saw and that. Them add together watching like a trailer for Wreck It Ralph and commenting, and I'm like, one, <laughs> this actually happened, and two, <laughs> this is hilarious. I mean, they, I mean, I don't know whose idea that was, but if that was the best idea to come out of this movie, still a win. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, everyone on the internet is screaming, it's like, <gasps> Deadpool is with an actual Marvel character. He's going to be in the Marvel movies. Yay. And I'm like, people, people just, you just appreciate, you just appreciate this for <laughs> what it is. Let's just enjoy this two and a half minutes of happiness that YouTube is giving us. <laughs> like, look, you are witnessing art and that's where you go. <laughs> Finally, for my last bit of geek out, uh, it's my turn to make someone on this podcast possibly jealous. Oh, no. <laughs> I didn't say it was you, Mike. But okay. it is you, Mike. Oh. 
All right, let's hear it. That might be both of you. I don't know. But before school started for the kids, we decided to take them on an actual vacation. You know, we've taken them to go see family, but this time we wanted it to be somewhere that was like a traditional vacation. You know what I mean? An experience. Yes. So we took them down to the coast and we went to Galveston and they had a lot of fun playing on the beach. Uh, It was a great experience. I had not been to the coast in decades and they'd never been. So we did that on day one. Had a great time. Day two, I wanted to do something different. Uh, I mean, we could have gone to the beach again, but I was feeling a little sandblasted. So <laughs> I thought, let's let's do something else new. What is there to do around Galveston? Some things sound fun. Some things I know sound fun to me, but the kids aren't going to enjoy. And wait a minute. Let me look up on my phone. What about this place? And oh, hey, NASA is exactly 30 minutes away. Mm-hmm. So I took the family to NASA. Oh, oh, that's. Sounds that that sounds nice. You son of a half riding lunch <laughs> Hey, 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 hey. <laughs> We've already had one explicit show last week with that kind of language. Oh <laughs> uh, no, no, seriously though, that sounds amazing. It was phenomenal. What did you guys um, get to see? I mean, like how much of it was like seriously, how much of it was open with COVID and all that? What what could you see? Okay, it was completely open and so I, I I don't know what I was expecting. I mean, I went into it not knowing anything about what they had available and what was like kid friendly or what was like available to just tourists. You know, you pay to get in, obviously, like you do everything. Right. But when you walk in, it is okay, have all three actually no, I know Brian and I have. Mike, I know you have not ever been to the Kansas <sighs> Cosmosphere. Really? No. That's extraordinary. I know. I like, okay, look, here's the thing. Like I, I always wanted to go to the Kansas Cosmosphere and something always, you know, when you live there and it's right there, it, mm-hmm. you know, there's always like, yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah, I'll do it tomorrow. Yeah, I'll do it next time. And until, you know, you're moving to Boston and you never do. <laughs> gotcha. So when you drive up in the parking lot, the first thing that greets you is the 747 with the USS Independence on the top of it. Wow. Did I tell the story on the podcast about uh, when they flew the the space shuttle into L.A.? No. Oh, my gosh. It was so funny. Um, so I am – it was while I was still working at that stereo conversion company, and uh, the CEO had taken me to the Warner Brothers lot to try and sell our services to somebody there. And we're standing in the parking lot when the 747 – with Atlantis comes by and it flies right behind the uh, Warner Brothers, the, the water tower, you know, where Yakko, Wacko and Dot are. So I'm it's like, very just this beautiful space shuttle. Yeah, I, I wish I had a, a camera to take a picture of it because it's just great thing. And this woman looks up at it and she says, wow, it looks just like a spaceship. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I mean, she's not wrong. <laughs> no, she's that. It, it looks exactly like a spaceship, ma'am. <laughs> All right. So it was the uh, the independence on top of the 747. And that's just outside the door. And once you get in, there are dozens of displays and things to interact with for kids, for adults, uh, talking about the history of spaceflight, history of NASA, uh, current technologies being researched what astronauts have to go through training wise to become astronauts, uh, what's in store for the future. 
<laughs> What's they in store a... for the future? We have billionaires leading space programs. The Expanse. Yeah. The Expanse is what's <laughs> in the future. <laughs> Uh, they also had a giant life-size model of Skylab. You can you can also sign up. It's included in the price of the ticket. You just have to sign up for it. You can take a tram ride, and you can either choose to go to the original Mission Control. Oh, my. Or you can go to the astronaut training area and view that along with the Saturn V rocket. Which is a giant building it's housed in. It's on its side. And words cannot describe to you the sheer size of this thing. I mean, I took a lot of pictures of it, and they don't do it justice. It is mind-bogglingly huge. But you can actually also go up inside of the 747 and the Independence. And it just was such a fun day. That sounds awesome. Is uh, Joy as much of an astronaut now as she used to be? Oh, yes. Just as much. She was in heaven. See, I think I would go on that trip just to listen to Joy's enthusiasm for the day. <laughs> yeah. What was enjoyable was taking that. Now, the tram itself is boring. It's a boring, you know, Houston, <laughs> uh, Texas day. You're just riding along. The tour guide is you know, on that building. They do this in that building that do that. And the things he's talking about are really fun sounding. And the buildings are just so utterly gray and boring. <laughs> so, but Joy was trying to fill in one or two of the kids with some some knowledge that she had. And I just found it enjoyable to listen to her. Just what tidbits she had at the drop of a hat about different parts of NASA's history and space flight. So, yeah, go to NASA. It's fun. <laughs> and I've honestly, I will be taking the family again. Once the kids are a little older, I mean, they had fun, but I think that they'll, especially the boys, they'll appreciate it more once they're just a bit older. And uh, that will wrap it up for my geek out. Oh, well, I guess that leaves it to me then. Oh, uh, well, I started compiling these notes when we were going to do this uh, thing like three weeks ago. So they're a little stale, but uh, recently, meaning three weeks ago, uh, <laughs> they dropped the, the first teaser trailers for Why the Last Man. Um, and I think I mentioned before that we're working on Why the Last Man. Very cool. Uh, and the trailers, it's like, this has actually been a new experience for me. Because usually, you know, I, I do a lot of work. And if my work makes it into the trailer at all, it's like just a few frames. But this one was like, that's my shot. Oh, oh wait, my wait, gosh. that's my shot too. Okay, so I've actually seen so the trailer. <laughs> Can you give me like any specifics? Uh, okay, so there's, there's a, uh, the one that I worked on the longest was uh, there's this, tractor trailer truck laying on its side and it's covered in snow. Mm -hmm. um, and you see the, the main female character, like you can't tell it's her because it's so far away, but she's trudging across through the snow. It's like, so there was, the road was completely, you know, it was a road. So I put snow on the road and I put snow on the side of the truck because they wanted to completely cover the side of the truck and it didn't have enough snow. And then of course, putting some, some fake trees in between to, to sandwich it so that you couldn't tell that there was work done there and putting the, the power lines back over the top. Um, I'm trying to remember what else was in it. There's the big uh, aerial shot where you're looking down and the streets are making the, the shape of a Y. That was one of our shots. Uh, there's one where you're you're looking up at at uh, Yorick, and there's this... You don't actually notice it in the, the shot that was there, but I happen to know that there's a CG helicopter very blurry in the background behind him. <laughs> now, is Yorick the last man, or is he the monkey? 
Uh, he's the last man. The monkey's okay. name is Ampersand. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the monkey is being done entirely by ILM. Um, and we're doing just like kind of random stuff. We're doing actually a lot of interiors of the Pentagon because they've got this set of the Pentagon, but it's not, those hallways aren't long enough. So we're extending the hallways. Uh, was the house explosion in the trailer? I think it was. That sounds familiar. We, we did the house explosion. So you were going in hoping that something of yours maybe got a half second, but instead the trailer became your new sizzle reel. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, this is just, we just put a Muse logo on it and that's our, that's our work. That's awesome. So yeah, I was pretty excited about that. Very cool. Now, when is that supposed to be released again? Uh, I think it starts airing uh, sometime in September. And what okay. streaming service was it? I don't know if it'll be immediately on a streaming service. It's going to be on FX. Oh, okay. FX. It'll be on cable. Gotcha. Uh, I mean, cable's still a me. thing? Cable is still a thing. You know, people over 70 still use it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it may show up on Hulu if you've got the, the premium Hulu account week gotcha. of, but I'm not sure. Um, we're still continuing to work on it. I think we're in working on the ninth episode. I'm not entirely certain how many episodes are in the season. Yeah, it sounds That's really it. cool. I'm looking forward to that coming out. Um, and I had mentioned in the past that I has been playing in a, a D&D game with Peter Martin of Saving the Game. Oh, how's and, that going? Uh, well, actually, he put that game on hiatus because he... <laughs> It got a little bit too big for him to handle. I don't think that he was really appreciating uh, the fact that I was trying to engage with it on a political level and he wanted to do dungeon crawls. Oh, no. So, <laughs> Brian, uh, stop trying to bring liberty to the masses. We're just in town to buy supplies. Well, <laughs> I talked the pirate queen into becoming a client state of our empire. That was kind of fun. <laughs> That's a thing. I don't have notes for this. <laughs> Said every GM, every game. Right. Anyway, uh, but he had been contributing to that level up uh, project. It's kind of like Pathfinder's, as Pathfinder was to third edition, level up is to fifth edition. Gotcha. And that's going to be kickstarting again next month in September sometime, maybe October. Uh, and he did substantial contributions to it. Uh, he wrote um, a lot of the multi-classing rules. Um, he wrote some uh, monster descriptions, uh, several other things that he mentioned that I have now forgotten because it's been three weeks since I was planning on talking about it. And I did not refresh myself as I should have. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I'm really looking forward to finally getting that stuff in my hands and uh, being able to to resume that game. Actually, one of the other players is going to be running Monster of the Week for oh, us wow. in the interim. Oh. Which I've never played a Powered by the Apocalypse game, so I'm really looking forward to that. I've got that rule book. I've wanted to play that game for a long time. It's been on my short list of things that I wanted to try. And we're going to do a... Uh, uh, we're all retired monster hunters living in the same retirement home when something happens. Oh, that's amazing. So my character is going to be kind of a cross between uh, Oscar from The Odd Couple and uh, Bobby Singer from Supernatural. I was imagining you were going to say Oscar from Sesame Street. But yeah, do go on. <laughs> and he's a a member of a one of those. It's kind of poking fun at groups like uh, The Golden Bow 
these spiritist cults um, that claim to have secret mystical knowledge, but actually don't. And so it's his, his group claims to be a medieval hermetic society that actually originated sometime in the 1920s. Uh, so he's the guy that knows, and I'm just imagining him, you know, he's brewing some kind of something in his cauldron in his room, and he's trying to keep the the nurse from coming in and seeing what he's doing. <laughs> I'm imagining in my weird little mind, it's a combination of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the movie Red with Bruce Willis. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> that is exactly what we're going for. Dude, I want to play this game. So I, Brian, get me in this game. You got to get me in this game, dude. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I just want to roll up John Malkovich's character. <laughs> so if, if you want to be John Malkovich, that's a different movie. <laughs> <laughs> well done. Nice. Yeah, so that, that should be a lot of fun in the interim before Peter can start up uh, his level up game. And he says that they have the layouts and everything pretty much done. And so the day that the Kickstarter ends, they'll have PDFs, you know, available. Wow. Printed books will obviously take a bit longer. So, yeah, definitely keep an eye out for that one on Kickstarter because they will definitely deliver and they'll have materials immediately. Uh, And I actually added one because as James was talking about The Witcher, I remembered, hey, wait, I'm reading something too. And as you know, I'd been going back and and trying to get a little bit grounding in the, the classics of science fiction and fantasy from the, you know, the 30s through the 70s. And I realized, you know, I've never read any Jack Vance. And since Gary Gygax was a big Vance fan and a lot of Dungeons and Dragons is based on Vance's work, I thought, you know what, I'm going to read The Dying Earth, find out what this is about. How have you been enjoying it? I have not been. Mm. (laughs) I like my fantasy heroic. You know, I like good versus evil. I like big stakes. And The Dying Earth is very... Very, I wouldn't call it low fantasy because it's it's got a lot of the high fantasy trappings, like earth shattering sorcery and that kind of thing. But the main character in most of these books, he's called Kujal the Clever, and he is a scoundrel, and not a scoundrel with a heart of gold. He's a person who all of the bad things that happened to him, he's earned them. Hmm. He's not a good guy. Um, and I, the longer I read about him, like I I really just want this guy to to not win. Like the person he's trying to get vengeance on is no better, but I don't want either of them to win. (laughs) Uh, So it's like, this is, this is not scratching the itch that I want for my fantasy. You Um, want the real hero to step in and give them both their comeuppance. Exactly. Yes. I think my favorite character so far has been uh, this like muscle, like clam person who played a joke on him. Wow. You know, when you said that the character was the muscle, I I had a very different (laughs) vision in my head than how that sentence actually ended. So I'm, I'm, I'm impressed. That's why I I was like kind of tripping over how to express it. It, She was a muscle, not, not like a a muscle person. She was a a clam, (laughs) a bivalve. Well, now I'm a little more into this, but anyway, (laughs) You know, I've, I felt the same way as you, Brian. I came across the book A Canticle for Leibowitz. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, it's classic, well-known science fiction. And I started, you know, reading about the subject matter. And at first I'm like, oh, that sounds fascinating. And then I read a little more. I'm like, 
I don't think I'm going to be in a good mood after I finish reading this book. <laughs> yeah, I, it's probably really good. Um, I don't think it's for me. I'm going to give it a pass. Yeah, I remember my experience reading the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, the Unbeliever, which Thomas Covenant is a a modern man with leprosy who gets transplanted into this fantasy world and is found by a young woman who immediately like applies this magic mud to him and cures his leprosy. He thanks her by raping her. Whoa. This is in the opening chapters of the first book. Whoa. Uh, like, not what I was expecting. Yeah, yeah exactly. That's, thank you for letting me know to stay away from that then. Much yeah, appreciated. Don't read those. They're, we're going to be talking about redemption story arcs later. And Covenant is an example of one where he does eventually kind of atone for his his bad behavior. But he is not somebody that I wanted to spend that many books with. And I'm rather shocked that I read all six of them. And I understand there's actually a third Chronicles of Thomas Covenant, and I'm not interested at all in in reading that. I really need my my fantasy to be heroic to enjoy it. Yeah, seriously appreciate it. Uh, like you know, bivalve character had me interested. Other thing has me hard pass. <laughs> yeah, uh, Jack Vance doesn't get that bad, fortunately. Okay. Oh, uh, uh, okay. Not Thomas Covenant. Okay, I yeah. Sorry. Oh, you were thinking those were the same thing? I no, it, was... I, I thought they were different <laughs> different books in the same series. So. No. Uh, the Chronicles of Thomas Covenant is by Stephen R. Donaldson. Um, and I read those when I was 13 or 14, I guess. My dad had them. And I had this, but I'm just comparing the experiences of reading these books to those. It's like, I read the Thomas Chronicle, the Thomas Covenant Chronicles and bleh. And then I read this one and it's a similar kind of bleh. So my conclusion is I need my heroes. I need somebody to, to admire in my fantasy fiction. I get that completely. And that pretty well wraps up my geek out too. Well, all right. Well, as Brian alluded to just moments ago, in this episode, we are going to be talking about redemption stories. And I wanted to start off by asking us collectively what we mean by redemption stories, because the capital R redemption means a little something different to us as Christians than it does to culture at large. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What is your, what is your understanding as what it means to the culture at large? I think most of the time when you say, Hey, this is a redemption story. What most people, if they're not, if they're not thinking about the, the term literally are going to say, Oh, well, this is about a bad person who becomes good. Yeah. In its best forms, it's, this is about somebody who's atoning for their past bad deeds. And in the worst cases, it's simply the heel face turn where I was bad, but now I'm good for some inexplicable reason. And everybody just kind of ignores the fact that I used to commit genocide. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's funny because the, the initial thing when we were coming up with this topic, I had a bunch of names. I was thinking, oh, yeah, we have this redemption story from this person and this person. And the more I thought about it the fewer of those characters were actually fitting exactly what I thought as, you know, a, a really good redemption arc. Uh, I think that for me, the best redemption arc would be one where an antagonist was, was pursuing goals that were, that were destructive 
to either themselves, the world in general, or both. And then through some encounter realizes that they were on the wrong path and then seeks to undo the harm that they were doing both to the world and to themselves and then makes some effort to make things right. And, you know, I'm not sure that that, that I'm not sure that that is exactly the capital R redemption story. I mean, I'm certainly there's parallels, mm-hmm. but I think that that's what I want out of a redemption story that I'm watching, I think. I yeah. But I think when we when we as Christians talk about redemption, the, the important thing is that we're looking at Christ, who is not a character who is himself being redeemed, but the, he is the redeemer. He's the one who's sacrificing something to make us the sinner, to justify us. So there's an exterior force involved. And we don't see that very often. I've got a couple of examples that I'll talk about later on. But I just wanted to, to point out that when we talk about a redemption story, we're not talking about the Christ-like redemption that we that we read about in the Bible. We're talking more about an atonement story. For me, the first place my mind goes is Paul, because that in my mind has always been the the ultimate example mm-hmm. of of a redemption story. And we know the story of Saul. We know who he was. We know all of the horrible things he did, and we know about his road to Damascus and how he became Paul and how he spent the rest of his life uh, living for Christ. And I think that is like fundamentally what Brian was talking about is that here you have the exterior action of of the divine on and in this person, mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. person responds with an effective change. Right, because the road to Damascus wasn't Paul looking at it or Saul looking at himself and saying, hey, I'm a horrible person. The experience at Damascus was Jesus appears in front of him and says, hey, dude, stop persecuting me. (laughs) Yeah, you're kind of a horrible person. Like, wait, wait, who who are you? Uh, Oh, oh, yeah. (laughs) So do we want to get into the, the specifics of the stories that we want to talk about? I think we should. Yep. I think the first one that that ever really comes to my mind is is Star Wars. And that was like the very first redemption story because um it, it I had this very profound uh, reaction to Return of the Jedi when I was a kid. Like mm-hmm. Vader finds an emotional anchor in his son and through his son he finds what's what's good within him and he can't stand idly by and let his son be killed so he sacrifices himself to save his son and i'm like okay that's that's when he switches to the good side and ultimately pays a major price to do the right thing mhm i can remember seeing return of the jedi as a young kid and the concept of a bad guy because I was young enough that that's that's how characters and films and TV shows were. Those were my categories. Good guys, bad guys. And the idea of a bad guy doing something other than being a bad guy was completely and utterly foreign to me. And this was the first example 
of any type of redemption I had ever seen on screen. And the first two Star Wars movies does a great job of establishing the character of Darth Vader. He is scary. He is a nightmarish force of nature. Yeah. Um, which also is the best part or one of the best parts of Rogue One mm-hmm. with that hallway scene. <laughs> like that that's the original trilogy Darth Vader in a nutshell. To quote Obi-Wan Kenobi, he's more machine now than man, twisted and evil. But when we get to Return of the Jedi, when Vader finally interacts with Luke, with his son, we begin to hear changes in his voice. We begin to see cracks in the monolith that is Vader. Luke says several times, there is still good in you. I can feel it. And you can almost get the sense he's wearing his father down. Yeah. I mean, in the scene when he departs, his father is actually leaning on, you know, on the rail, like, you know, kind of wait this, this moment weighed on him. And when Luke gives like one final plea, there's a pause in Vader with this, um, this resigned tenor to his voice. It is too late for me, my son. Mm -hmm. Like, wait, is that regret? Is that sorrow we hear in his voice? And those small moments help set the stage yeah. for the final battle. Yeah. For when Vader is, once again, a choice is put in front of him. What is he going to do? On one hand, he has the place he's held for the past 20 some odd years beside the Emperor, serving his master, continuing to live with the choice that he made decades ago. Or he has in front of him his son writhing and in pain, calling out to him, Father, please. And then you hear your master say, Now, young Skywalker, you will die. And it's it's such a powerful moment. The music swells as Vader finally... He, he's made so many mistakes. He's ever since cutting off Mace Windu's hand and letting the dude get blown out a window, he's pretty much made all the mistakes for years. And finally, he has one more choice put before him. He makes the decision... And he decides to save his son. He picks Palpatine up, takes the brunt of the attack, hurdles Palpatine from on high over the rail. And it made an impression on on young James. I mean, I think that the reason why it's such it made such an impression is that when you when you have a franchise, generally the narrative is how is how is good going to with might defeat evil? Like that's that's the narrative we're buying into. Mm-hmm. One time I was I was joking with a friend who who'd never seen Star Wars, and so I showed her the first movie and I said, "Oh, and spoiler alert, we go through two more movies, and in the end, Darth Vader decides what he's doing is wrong, and he decides not to do it anymore." And you know, she just laughs like, "Yeah, right." Luke kills him, and then you know, walks off. And it's because <laughs> that's that's not the way that we tell stories. And I think that's what made this story fantastic is that this, this was the narrative that, that there was something that could, that could flip in, you know, the, the most powerful evil force of nature. Yeah. And inside he's a human being who is Anakin Skywalker and he's gonna, he is in the end going to do finally the right thing. On a quick side note, I just want to say when, the remastered special editions came out all those years ago. I was so looking forward to seeing them in theater and we got to return of the Jedi. And when that great moment came and I heard Darth Vader go, no, 
no, no. I'm sitting in theater going, what the crap is yeah. this? I absolutely hated that it was added. They were unnecessary. It was almost comical the way it sounded, and it, it completely robbed the scene of the emotional gut punch that it evoked. Yeah, it was. It really undercut the drama mm-hmm. for sure. Vader's atonement's very brief. I mean, and this is a, a trope that we see a lot in these kinds of stories that atonement equals death. I think that's the uh, yeah. the name of it on TV tropes. He makes his one choice and then he dies because that's narratively necessary. He killed a lot of people. He has to die at the end. Mm-hmm. And so we don't really get to spend a whole lot of time with his emotional journey, really just the, the elevator ride and then the fight. Yeah. And that actually is one of the things that makes me appreciate the prequel trilogy a little bit, that we get some context and some depth for Darth Vader when we realize that his fall to the dark side was driven by his fear of losing his family. You know, from the very beginning, Yoda's telling him, you fear losing your mother, and this is your path to the dark side. And then we get all the way to the end of Return of the Jedi, and it's his fear of losing his son that brings him back. And I think we can pick that up even as early as The Empire Strikes Back when Palpatine's telling him, well, you've got to kill young Skywalker. And he's like, do I really have to? Can I, can I look for a way to save him? Yeah. He could be a powerful ally. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure that that wasn't the point of the script at that time. Mm -hmm. Although, I don't know, maybe Lucas was looking a little bit further forward. But if we choose to read it in, we can see that that note of love even in that scene. And that's how I choose to read it anyway. Yeah, this is like this is one of the things that we when we're talking about the redemption of of these characters, I mean, back to the redemption equals death. Like we still maybe it's a cynical kind of justice that that we demand to see the bad guy die like even if the hero doesn't kill him at least he's still dead in the end um and being that's a hollywood movie not a 12 book epic we don't really have the kind of time it would take but if we look at the sequel trilogy i was watching it and kind of wondering what would happen because we get to see ben you know make some choices and i would Part of me was like, wow, I I would love to see if Ben comes back alive to the resistance and had to hash it out, hash out what happened with all of Mm -hmm. his his newfound allies. I wanted to see that we get back to camp moment. Yeah, I think we had a a brief conversation on Twitter recently to that effect. Uh, If that had happened, if if Ray had died instead of Ben, then actually that would have put this firmly into the more Christian capital R redemption, because when we would have had the the good character dying to bring the bad character back into the light. And mm. I thought that that would have been way more moving to me personally, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of reasons that it couldn't have happened that way. For yeah. one thing, they're definitely not going to kill off. Hey, here's our girl Jedi that we're <laughs> rebuilding the entire franchise on. Mm-hmm. They're not going to do that. <laughs> See, I think it would have been better. If they had not killed either one. And I was that whole like, oh, I'm going to give you my life force. No, I'm going to give you my life force. I'm like, oh, <laughs> well, why don't just, we just split just the get life a force room already? Yeah, let's split the life force, and we'll both be in a hospital for a week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah no, it's, I, don't know. I was so disappointed. There are no half measures. Yeah. <laughs> but I was very disappointed with Ben's death at the end for several reasons. But I mean, I could see that they were 
trying to do a, a parallel and a mirror of Vader's story, his whole arc and his redemption and subsequent death. And like what you said, Brian, redemption equals death. Atonement equals death. But hear me out. What about a Ben Skywalker who left Kylo Ren behind and lives? I mean, we see so many examples that it's its own trope. You've redeemed yourself, then you die. Yeah, because that's dying is easy. You don't have to face what you did. Living is much harder. Death is lighter than a feather, but duty is heavier than a mountain. Thank you for bringing the Wheel of Time reference. That's why I keep you around, <laughs> my man. But a Ben Skywalker who lived and had to face the repercussions of his actions and seeks to atone daily could have made an incredible series dealing with concepts of remorse, forgiveness, trauma, and the repercussions of one's actions. Yeah, I would okay. totally read a series of novels. Yeah, they, they used to have a, an Infinities comic line that would make a wonderful Infinities story. Well, you know, Marvel brought back What If, so <laughs> fingers crossed. Hey, Marvel, do some What If Star Wars right there. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think we could probably we could probably do Star Wars for a good solid three hours. Uh, so, like, <laughs> let's let's talk about some of the others. There's one that I that really impressed me the first time around, uh, and I watched it again another time around, which is uh, Steven Universe. Have have either of you? I think James, you haven't seen this. Brian, have you? Uh, on your recommendation, I watched it. Yeah. Okay. It's been on my radar. I'll be honest with you, man. It's just not one that sincerely interests me. Fair. But please go right ahead. Like, you yeah. don't have to like everything that I do. That's not the basis of our friendship. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that that really drives this show is its conflict resolution. Uh, and there are a lot of characters that enter the show with their own history, trauma, allegiances. And the point is that they find ways to walk through it or they get stuck in their journey. And there's an entire episode's worth of content on that theme, but we, I don't think that we can explore that. The final <laughs> season really throws a spotlight on a lot of this though the the main galactic antagonists are these diamonds they're alien sentient gems with a vast control of a huge empire uh and and there's the empire is struggling under their exacting control and so the diamonds really are an analog for different facets of of an abusive controlling fa family and the protagonist steven Ultimately, what he wants to do is come face to face with them for the singular purpose of talking out their differences and trying to bring restoration to all the damage that's been brought on Earth. And I was really impressed that a show drove the narrative of a point of healing. What they wanted was a redemption of all that they had on Earth through reconciliation and restoration. And even the big bads of all of their earlier seasons were eventually brought out of the woodwork and all of them were restored to something that was, that was good. Um, and I was really impressed with that was the, that was the fundamental purpose of that narrative. Yeah. There were a number of stories in which they defeated their opposition, but they always felt the, the victories always felt a little hollow because, and I, I didn't realize this until you started talking about it that the episodes that I really liked, the the endings that I enjoyed were the ones where, yeah, they were bringing healing. They were restoring the relationships between the, the bad guys and, and themselves. 
And I didn't feel that sense of this story is finished until that happened with each of their adversaries. So, yeah, I thought it was fantastic for that reason, but there's, there's also kind of an unfortunate problem with this story. And while, while it, it is a, a little bit of what happens when Kylo gets back to the resistance kind of ending, it was really fast. I mean, it was, mm. we've confronted, we've confronted the diamonds and in the, in the span of like maybe an uh, 45 minutes and an hour, there is, let's confront the big bads. We talked it out. We did the thing. And now we have a very happy, cheery, it's all positive and they bring healing back to everything. But it was so fast because unfortunately the, the, the showrunner had, had an artificially limited number of episodes before they pulled the plug. And so it was really rushed. And this, yeah. I found out, really left a bad taste in the mouth of people who actually suffered under familial abuse. It's because the the redemption team came too quickly and too easily without showing the diamonds having to do a lot of work to repair the relationships that they damaged. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I, I felt that way too, that, man, this was really rushed at the end. Because they they've done such a good job of spinning out the the mythology slowly, and you're just getting bits and pieces of it. So it kept me engaged for so long. Why I'd watch five or six episodes in a row because I was just getting little hints, and then all of a sudden, big info dump at the end, and we get all of it all at once. Yeah. So it makes a lot of sense that oh hey we've been canceled and we've got to try and wrap this story up Babylon Five season four style. Yeah. It will probably hit on this just a little bit later on, but I, I think that there is kind of a narrative and a warning that it, we we do like Stephen because what he's trying to do is to bring healing through reconciliation. But I think there's also a warning in that this is not always possible. Don't take this as, as an allegory mm -hmm. for your duty when it comes to abusive individuals in your path. You are not duty bound to change them. They have to make decisions for themselves. You can't make these things happen. So there is sometimes a narrative that gets put in front of people like, oh, if you do this, then the abusive person will change. That's up to them. That's not up to you. It's a great narrative, but also be careful when you, when you, are, when you are seeking out that, uh, that narrative with individuals with abusive power. Hmm. So just a little bit of a cautionary aspect of that yeah well um another story where we see redemption and atonement playing very prominently is uh buffy the vampire slayer and its spinoff angel uh there are major themes running through both shows and we get a good look at it from several different angles and it gets with increasing sensitivity and complexity as as the shows go on because we start off we've got angel the classic atoner he's a vampire who's his soul has been returned to him, so he's now good, and he's trying to make up for his past misdeeds. And then season two or three, uh, uh, two. yeah, season two introduces Spike, and I think it's in, I, th I think it's at the end, middle of season three, where uh, something happens to him that he can't kill humans anymore. Uh, and this is the the shallow heel face turn where Spike suddenly can't do his evil deeds, and so he reluctantly joins the good guys. Mm. <laughs> And they and we get so used to him being there that sometimes he has to remind everyone that, hey, I'm evil. I'm going to stir up trouble because I'm not, in fact, one of the good guys. And this continues right up until near the end of Buffy when he 
well, we could go in into quite a bit of that. And I think James wants to talk a bit about Spike too, but he makes his final choice and he sacrifices himself for everyone, which is of course short lived because then he has to turn up on Angel because he's such a great character that they didn't want to throw him away. <laughs> and James Marsters was just happy for the paycheck. Yes, he was. <laughs> um, I mean, you could say a lot about both Spike and Angel. Uh, Spike's redemption arc is the one that stands out more to me of the two. Don't get me wrong. I like Angel. I liked his character. I like how he was introduced. I liked the twist that came with him. Like, oh, he's helping Buffy. But, oh, no, he's a vampire. But, wait, he's a vampire with a soul. But, oh, wait, he can turn evil again. Oh, wait, he can be good again. It just flip-flopped back and forth with that guy a lot. Um, (laughs) But when we meet him, he had his conversion moment a long time ago. Like the 19th century a long time ago and note to all vampires don't eat gypsies um (laughs) but we get to witness spikes over the course of a couple of seasons and what i liked about it is that it wasn't immediate it wasn't clean and it wasn't something that they dealt with over the course of one 42 minute episode Mm -hmm. what starts spike's journey and drives his redemption is he no one saw it coming he falls in love with a slayer. I think he's a great example of how love doesn't automatically make someone a better person. Yes, thank you. It can love can be very selfish. It can be self-serving and love can be very damaging. And now that love does drive him to do some noble acts. Uh, I'm thinking specifically about all the times that he protected, as you said, Brian, he helped the the Scooby gang out in various fights, protecting Buffy's mom in the big season four uh, finale when, you know, they're basically fighting a God and Buffy tasks Spike with protecting her sister. And he comes face to face with a demon, which is much stronger than he is. And the demon's looking at him going, what's up with you? You should be on my side. I don't sense a soul with you. You're a vampire. Why are you protecting that girl? And Spike, he's had the tar beat out of him, but he looks the guy in the eyes and says, I made a promise to a lady. I'm like, wow, you're a bit of a rat, but I respect that moment. <laughs> but that same love sees him pay someone to create a robot, a sex robot replica of Buffy. And it also sees him attempting to rape her in one of the m- more traumatic moments of TV that I've ever seen because of just how utterly in a show about monsters and fantasy angels and, and demons and vampire slayers, this moment felt very, very real world. That was the most horrific part of the entire show, I think. I agree with you. I mean, the two moments that stood out in that show as just slapped me across the face was that scene and the scene where Buffy walks in and she sees oh, her mother dead on the couch. And it was nothing supernatural at all. It was just a medical issue. It happened off camera. It just was so sobering. But back to Spike, after this traumatic event, he realizes that while he may love Buffy, he's still a soulless, evil monster. He's made a terrible mistake, and he's going to keep making them because that is his nature. And he realizes that until he changes his nature, he cannot change his actions. That'll preach. So you don't know what he goes to do. It's, it's left as a mystery where he's going, what he's doing after the events of this episode. He's going through some type of trial, basically fighting to the death and, and going through these horrible ordeals. And you think, is he doing this to get more power? Why is he doing this? And when asked, he says, so Buffy can get what she deserves. 
and the being that is putting him through all this goes very well. You will have what you desire, your soul. Spike's mistakes aren't done, as we've seen in the last season, but now, along with a desire to love, a desire to try to be better, he is actually filled with the need, the desire, the want to not just be a better man for Buffy, but just to try to be a better man, period. Mm-hmm. I will admit, I've only watched the first season of Angel, and he had not been introduced in it yet. So I don't know how his arc in that continues. I know you saw at least the puppet episode. I have seen the puppet episode, but that's a special <laughs> case. Who? Come on, you have to see the puppet episode. Um, I haven't you're, seen. I haven't seen the puppet episode. You're a wee little puppet man. Uh, okay, now but, I guess I got to go look for the puppet episode. <laughs> there were some later notes in Angel with Angel himself that I think are, are worth mentioning at this point that show that his work of atonement, because he's been, he spent 150 years trying to, to work off this karmic debt. And there are a couple of points where he just gets tired because the level of evil that's still in front of him and the level of evil that he's trying to make up for in his past overwhelm him. And he doesn't have to lose his soul. Nothing supernatural has to happen to him. He just, beat down and tired of trying to do the right thing all the time. And he makes some really crappy decisions, um, drives his friends away from him. And he doesn't have the excuse of not having a soul. It's just, he's just turning into a bad person. And I really, Hey, I know plenty of people with souls who are jerks. (laughs) Right. And I think that was a really important line of stories in there that, Hmm. you know what? It doesn't take being a vampire to be terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, and, Doing the right thing is hard, and doing the right thing consistently is almost impossible. Agreed. Um, and so I really appreciated some of the the middle seasons of Angel tackling that issue too. And then, of course, you've got Harmony, who goes in the totally opposite direction, <laughs> pretending yes. to be good, but ultimately proving that evil is unrepentant. Yeah. Makes me wonder why his soul was located in his chest. <laughs> Uh, well, I guess because Katra's and that leads us to Shira, right? And because <laughs> because it looks great on a TV screen. It's right. great I visual. Chakras. Yeah. Yeah. I was thinking chakras. <laughs> right. Well, that's Avatar. We'll get there. Um, wait, no, wait. Katra's. Wait a minute. So you're saying Spike is a Vulcan? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, Shira, because I mean. <laughs> Catra, like we've got to talk about Catra. I was really, really excited to rewatch Catra's arc uh, in preparation for this episode. I mean, it's such an off-sighted arc for okay. for redemption stories. Once again, I'm the odd man out. I have not seen any episodes of Shira. <laughs> Mike, I know you've seen them all. You've talked about them on this podcast before. Brian, have you seen them? Yeah, yeah, I watched. I watched okay. Shira. Uh, so it's safe to say that this is actually one that you guys both recommend. I wow, that's a heck of a that's question. A, <laughs> because yeah, I gotta say, is, yeah. because the first season or two is it's a kids show with kind of a slog. Mm-hmm. Um, towards the end of season two, things start ramping up, but it's what they do is they build a lot of good emotional arcs. If you're interested in watching emotional arcs, this is a good story. 
Right. There's a lot that I love about Katra and his arcs, but this is one of those shallow turns that I was talking about earlier. I never really get the sense that Katra wants to atone for what she's done. I mean, she has realized how badly she's been treated. She's realized what it is that she really wants, that relationship with Adora. But other than joining the princesses, she doesn't really do anything that shows she's remorseful, does she? I, you know, I wanted to, this is the thing is I put Katra in here and I really wanted to respond to this question with like, no, I'm going to, I'm going to rewatch this. I'm going to break it down. And I really wanted to be able to, to disagree with this, but I, I really think that you made a, a good point. People are switching allegiances all over this show. Like <laughs> in Trapta, oh my gosh, whom I love, is is switching back and forth all the time because she's she's like the chaotic neutral character. Like she has she has her I don't think she's ever even realized she's on a side. Yeah, no, it's because that's why I say that she's perfect chaotic neutral is because she's so focused on alien tech that everything else just fades out in the periphery. Um Shadow Weaver defects early from the horde because she's out of options in the horde and she wants to strike back. And well, the princesses can can use her. And I think that the difference with Katra and the other examples is that her character does change as a result of her emotional journey. She she does come to a moment where she realizes the things that she's done. And she is able to say to Adora in what she thinks is her, you know, Darth Vader, I'm sacrificing myself moment. Um, you know, I'm sorry. Tell Adora I'm sorry. And I think that Catra's turn makes sense in terms of her emotional journey towards Adora. But it isn't coming to terms with all of the awful things that she did and making it a redemption story about trying to embrace the good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Even in the very end of the show, you know, spoilers, um, she's, she's saying to Adora, you don't have to do this. Let's just run away because that's what Katra does. Like <laughs> if something is too big, she either, she either finds a way out of it, around it, supersedes it, uh, subverts it, or she runs away from it. And now she wants what she wants, which is Adora, and says, you know, Adora, come with me. We'll, we can do this. And even in another, another towards the end of, of season four, uh, she's in a position with double trouble and shows Katra her demons. I mean, and it's fantastic because the show really is, uh, is showing Katra's emotional problems. And so double trouble just shows her her demons. But Katra, instead of following the hero's journey, Katra can't accept what she's seeing as the truth. And her emotional resistance is too high and she just denies it and she runs. And she tries to even establish old patterns, which never did serve her well, in a new environment. Yeah, I really think that the only thing that, that says that she understands what she's done is when she's talking to Glimmer, uh, who is an imprisoned rebel queen. But I, I also do have to say that the episode where they start to have the switch is an episode named Save the Cat, which when they go in to rescue Catra, I'm like, okay, that's brilliant. But yeah, I probably said too much, but, you know, amazing emotional arc. But really, the thing she cares about is Adora not doing the right thing for the right reason. Mm -hmm. 
You know, it's amazing. Uh, We've talked about two incredible cartoons with redemption arcs that I have not seen. But one that I do have to bring up, which I'm sure you guys know all about is, and my wife and daughter pointed this out to me, we really need to touch on just for a moment, the redemption arcs found with the characters of Nightmare Moon and Discord, the Chaos Bringer in the cartoon, My Little Pony. Let's do it. Let's bring it. (laughs) I haven't watched quite enough of My Little Pony. I did watch the Nightmare Moon arc, but I haven't gotten to the point where Discord I was not Turns expecting back. that answer from you, frankly. <laughs> like I was keeping that all surface level. <laughs> like, do you know what? Like, it's been ages since I've seen it. But seriously, when it was one of the first, not one of the first, but it was a kid show that was going story driven with its first season. So yeah, yeah, I watched I watched My Little Pony with my kids. I I have as well, and I I found myself actually enjoying it at times. And uh, I watched The Moon with my daughter, which was fun. And the only thing I'm going to say about it is the fact that the character Discord is, you know, a reality changing chaos bringer who is voiced by John Delancey. And it is completely I have decided headcanon in my mind that that is actually Q and the My Little Pony verse is where he hangs out when he's not bothering Jean-Luc on the Enterprise. You cannot convince me otherwise. Oh, the writers accepted. Yeah, the writers yes. knew what they were doing. Exactly. <laughs> that is Q. It is 100 percent Q headcanon established. Now and forevermore. All right. Uh, so I, I don't have any kids that I watched it with. I only watched it because one of my friends is a storyboard artist on it. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good reason. Good that reason is an excellent reason. Yeah. But moving on. <laughs> right. Maybe something that's not quite so cartoonish. <laughs> Slightly less cartoonish. because Slightly less cartoonish. <laughs> as promised, I do have one show, movie, series, that shows re- redemption the way Jesus demonstrated it. Kind of. Uh, in Harry Potter... Rowling claims that Harry is the Christ figure in the stories, but I don't really see it that way because, yeah, he lays down his life to save the wizarding world. And I'm kind of disgusted myself that I just use wizarding as a verb. But anyway, uh, actually, it's an I'll, I'll allow it. I think Michael, it's allowed here. Just go, <laughs> you can go around verbing all the nouns all as much as you want. Yeah, but verbing exactly. is language, as Calvin <laughs> told us. Anyway, and he resurrects. But the people that he dies for are all of the heroic characters. I mean, he dies for Longbottom and Dumbledore and Hermione and Ron. If we're looking for a redeemer archetype in the vein of Jesus, I think we find it in the characters of Dumbledore and Snape. Mm. Because Dumbledore didn't die for everybody at Hogwarts. He didn't even die for Harry, Ron, and Hermione. He gave up his life willingly for Draco. Yeah. Yeah, that's a and great for the, point. For, for someone who could be considered the least of these. Right. And Snape sacrificed even more by carrying out the murder because he has to bear that, that burden of assassinating his friend, being thought to be the bad guy. And like Jesus, he said, greater love has no one than this to lay down their life for their friends. But these two gave up everything to save their enemy. And that's us. I mean, we're the, we're the bad guys. And so if there's a redemption story in Harry Potter... It's those two characters, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that you make a fantastic point. Brief. But, but, uh, that's but all I had to say about Harry Yeah, Potter. I mean, well, that's the thing. It's brief, but it's there. I mean, what, what more do you want me to say? Yeah. Yeah. So well. <laughs> well. Especially because we're probably going to spend way too much time talking about the next one. Wait, yes. I thought there were no more left. Do we have anything more? Oh, wait. You're talking about Avatar The Last Airbender because that is yes. so awesome. Yes. I'll be honest, when we brought up the subject of redemption stories, 
Zuko was the very first one I thought of. Mm. I mean, like, well, Zuko, obviously. <laughs> Actually, we had an episode where we talked briefly about the idea of a redemption story, and it took you several minutes to think of of, of his name. And we talked about Pac-Man, and we distracted you for a while. But yes. <laughs> <laughs> My daughter, as I was bringing up this podcast and the fact we we're going to be talking about Zuko, she's like, oh, yeah, Avatar, Last Airbender. I told you it was good. I'm like, uh, <laughs> I was watching this show when I was still feeding you your bottle. <laughs> All right. This we could probably go on an entire episode about why this show is amazing. But one of the things that I think is really incredible is that this show is being driven by the emotional beats of the antagonist. And I mean, that was also done by Shira with Katra. Like her emotional beats mm. are also driving that narrative. This becomes really explicit, especially in season two. I mean, it's been implicit from the beginning. Like Zuko is searching for redemption the entire show. Yeah. Like, He's an outcast because he showed an improper level of deference to his father and and has been sent out on a, a hopeless and fool's errand to find the Avatar. And so he's hoping that if he chases and captures the Avatar, uh, bringing Aang back is going to restore his honor and is going to give him his father's approval and it's going to give him everything that he needs to redeem himself. Um, but one of the things that happens is towards the end of season two, he's confronted with what his destiny is and whether mm -hmm. it's one that is artificially imposed upon him with his broken relationship with his father or a destiny of his own choosing. And his sister Azula makes that explicit. Like Zuko has been seeking redemption and she says, this is how you redeem yourself. And he does it. And he comes to to the conclusion that what he did wound up being a really hollow victory. Mm -hmm. You get to the end of season two, the beginning of season three, he has finally attained everything he's hoped for. He's been welcomed home as a hero. Everyone thinks the Avatar is dead. His father has welcomed him back. He's in everyone's good graces. And he is utterly, completely miserable. He finds that in his heart, this is nothing that he wanted. He feels empty and angry, and he doesn't know at what. And at this point in the show, when, when the end of season two came and he teamed up with his sister, I was about to write him off. I, <laughs> I really was. I felt actual anger at a cartoon character, which to me is a testament to the writing of this show right. and the performance of the character. Then when it shows that he's not living in triumph, he's living in misery. It takes such a hard journey of self-discovery and of truly looking at himself to realize I finally have everything I, I wanted and I was wrong. Yeah. Now he has to do the unthinkable. <laughs> I mean, that's. I think that's that's kind of the thing is that's what makes this probably the most exemplary redemption story because he has to reject everything his ill deeds have granted him. He has to leave yeah. his comforts of royalty um, a little bit later. He actually has to relearn the source of his firebending and he he has to have the Ben Kylo moment that I wanted to see the coming back to camp moment 
with the avatar and his gang and, and oh my it, does, gosh. it does not go it does not go amazing <laughs> hi uh zuko here uh i, I was bad uh, but i'm good now <laughs> you think that we're just gonna turn around and trust you after everything well and that's that was really kind of an amazing thing that they don't trust him and even after he apologizes and this is the thing is that i was really impressed with the writing they had him apologize for specific things that he had done wrong. He owned how he personally harmed the other members of the party. And yeah, that's something that does not happen in TV. No, yeah. it's, it's something that people need to see more often that you mess up. OK, don't just try to act better. You need to do your best to fix what happened. Yeah. You need to make amends. Yeah. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes there is no making amends, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that people shouldn't try. Well, and that's the thing is that even Katara doesn't doesn't say, you know, do you know what? Thank you for apologizing. I forgive you. And it's more like, thank you for apologizing. I don't forgive you. And I know that you've struggled with doing the right thing before. And if you set one toe out of line, if I think you're going to hurt Aang, uh, she basically says, I'm going to put you in the ground. I mean, she doesn't say that expl it's pr pretty explicit. It's the closest. Close. That, yeah. yeah. <laughs> For a kid I mean, there, show. There's, it's there's no mistaking what she means. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm going to take care of your, mor your moral confusion in a permanent way. And by permanent, so, I mean, it's because you won't be breathing anymore. And by breathing anymore, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> I forget. At this point, had she learned bloodbending yet? <laughs> yes, she had. Um, yeah. And the thing is also, he, he doesn't follow like a linear trajectory of good because he says oh mm -hmm. yeah i found i found the guy who, who killed your mom um you you want to go meet up with the guy and he's like he's fully expecting expecting that she'll end him and in the end she has to come to terms with her own with her own demons mm -hmm. but in working through those demons she also says well okay i can't i can't live there i can't mm -hmm. do awful things because it doesn't help me but it, it does help me forgive you. Which I thought it's, was really cool. it's interesting how he also becomes a vehicle in which the other characters deal with some of their own emotional baggage. He goes on a mission with Aang to discover why he is having trouble with firebending, but also they discover the original firebending masters and gain a new level of appreciation and skill that neither one thought that they would ever find. As he goes with uh, Katara to find the man who she b believed to have killed her mother, and she has to deal with, with her own issue and the ghosts of the past. He goes with Sokka on a rescue mission to a firebending prison to try to find his father, who we feel like you know Sokka has been chasing after throughout the entire series. Yeah. And at one point, the group is getting ready to split up, and Top goes, no, it is my turn to go on this mission of self-discovery with him. All of you have had your little missions. Now it's my turn. Um, one of the things that I do have to, to credit the show is it is really emotionally smart. And one of the things that the vice president of the school that I work for loves the show and wrote a psychoanalytic examination of Zuko's journey, which is not, you know, it's not redemption focused, but I, I think it's worth putting in the show notes. 
side note, I know that that this gave you a malware bytes claim. We got that fixed, you know, Good. just so you know. <laughs> like, and super thank you for pointing that out because my last scan before that, like a week ago, turned up clean. That one turned up dirty. Yeah, let's make sure that this our podcast doesn't give our listeners problems. <laughs> At least not those kinds of problems. The, the pro- yes. Yeah. <laughs> what it what it what it turned out the malware was doing was selling drugs on our website. So I mean, not actually, you know, mailing the drugs. But once you paid for the drugs, the drug sellers would just say "lol" and keep your credit card number. But anyway, right? Because everybody is going to buy their pharmaceuticals on a college department of psychology website for some reason well what it <laughs> what the purpose of that was was not actually to get people to buy the drugs off of our website but it was to right. increase their seo yeah. standings right yeah anyway and, but, and besides, besides, besides brian everyone knows you buy them in the basement of the psychology department that's right <laughs> the other psychology student. come on i wanted to bring up uh one other element in zuko's story that i think is really important and that that's he had a model showing him the steps that he needed to take yeah. because Iroh had been through this, the same experience already. He is a character who has gone through this path of redemption. Yeah. Uh, he's made up for the things that he's done and he's offering his wisdom to his, his nephew. Zuko's not doing this on his own. He has support from his uncle. He has the model. And importantly, Iroh knows when to step away because it's really important that Zuko takes that last step on his own and realizes that he has the strength to take the last steps of the journey toward where he needs to be. Mm-hmm. And I was, I was a little frustrated when suddenly Iroh is just given up on him. Like, dude, all of this time you have been in his corner the whole time. And now you're going to, you're going to turn your back on him. And it took watching how things played out and realizing, wow, he's even wiser than I had given him credit for. I was very impressed. Everybody needs an Uncle Iroh in their life. (laughs) All of us do. And we talked a lot about father figures in the last episode. Speaking of on the path to redemption, I just want to talk about that interaction between Zuko and Iroh. Zuko has turned his back on the Fire Nation. He's been helping the Avatar. Where in the last few episodes, Iroh has, like a boss, broken out of prison. (laughs) And right before the big battle at the end, they encounter each other. And Zuko is just, he's feeling nothing but shame and sorrow. And he's trying to find the words to apologize to his uncle. And he's stuttering over it. He can't get it out. And all Iroh does is turn around, grab him, and pull him into an embrace just holds him tight. I remember the lines. Zuko asks, how can you forgive me? How can you forgive me so easily? And Iris says, I was never angry with you. I was sad because I was afraid you'd lost your way. Mm-hmm. Hold on. I need a minute. <laughs> no, but really, I think that it's, that it's, that that was such an emotionally impactful scene. Sometimes the path to redemption needs a hand. It needs a bit of help. I mean, it always needs and- help. And Iroh provided that help in in so many ways. I mean, where would Zuko have been without Iroh? I mean, if you think that the big R redemption happens without help, then your theology is so <laughs> messed up. Yes. You're so right. Well, but no, it does like happen Star without War. help. It's just you're not the active agent in <laughs> that. <laughs> so just like with Star Wars, we could spend three episodes talking about the powerful messages in avatar the last airbender so that's what you heard folks uh this is part one of three for the geek arms <laughs> podcast on avatar the last airbender. Part, part one of six because we've got three to do for uh 
Star Wars also. No, oh, okay, yes. Fair enough. <laughs> that should get us through till 2023. Yeah. <laughs> Have you guys noticed how most of these redemptive arcs and these characters are talked about are all from kid shows? Yeah, that got me and, and my friend Sydney talking and thinking because sometimes I talk to her about what's coming up on the show because she's amazing. Uh, and one of the questions is, is it just that adults have become too jaded and cynical to really believe uh, that people who do so much harm can really change? Yeah, we're the worst. Oh, <laughs> well, maybe. Uh, I don't think there's a complete lack of redemption stories in fiction for grownups. Mm -hmm. um, I, I wanted to say in adult fiction, but that has a slightly different connotation. Gr Grown-up fiction. <laughs> Grown-up fiction. Yeah. Uh, you've got characters like uh, Delinar Colin, if you've read The Stormlight Archive by Brandon Sanderson, and Teal'c in Stargate SG-1. And these are good yeah. examples of people who are living in the consequences of their past. They're the, the Kylo Ren, the Ben Solo that we wanted to see, but didn't get to. Um, the MCU has some good examples, uh, my favorite of which is uh, Natasha giving her life to save Hawkeye. And we could get into it with that one, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. man. Like, why did you kill the interesting character? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, because she was not the one who needed redeemed. Uh, fair. Yeah. Okay. Side note, have you guys seen the Black Widow movie? Yes. Yes. It was great. That's not it where your great. olfactory nerve is. And That's not where your olfactory nerve is. The whole thing falls apart. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it does a great job of setting up the sacrifice. But speaking of examples in adult-oriented media, we've established that I'm a music theater geek. And I have to bring up the character of Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This is a man who, and I'll try to get through this as quickly as possible. I mean, he. <laughs> Look at the book. Don't you laugh at me. <laughs> I know it, it is funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, but in a nutshell, this is a man who was imprisoned for 20 years for the horrible, detestable crime of stealing a loaf of bread. And he was put into one of the worst prisons on earth outside of Russia. He's released as a hardened and embittered man. Yeah, that I mean, prison made him into something he wasn't before. Exactly. And when we first see him, he's got his yellow ticket of leave, and he realizes, I have no life ahead of me. I'm always going to be a criminal, you know, so why not act like it? And uh, he even goes as far as to rob a priest who showed him kindness, took him in, gave him a place to sleep, and fed him. And it is, in fact, that priest who starts Valjean on his redemptive track. Valjean steals silver from the priest, leaves, immediately gets caught by the police. Police bring him back, and the priest says, no, I gave him that silver. Officers, thank you very much. In fact, my friend, you should have taken the candlesticks as well. And after the police leave, he does what Valjean never imagined would happen. Valjean thought his life was over. Instead, it was just beginning. Because this priest forgives him, challenges him. In my favorite line from the musical, I had the, the privilege of seeing this on Broadway. The priest is, of course, is singing these incredible lines. It's very powerful, thick with emotion. The verse ends with, I have bought your soul for God. 
one of my favorite lines in all of history. It may not be, you know, what you want to tell people is that, oh, yeah, I can buy your soul. No problem. Yeah, um, I mean, it's it's, it's, not the, what we, it's theater, not theology books. So Exactly. It's theater, but not theology books. And Ashley's just cringing. The, you know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but the message is there because it puts Valjean at a crossroads. And those crossroads are something that every character we've talked about has encountered. Does he continue down this path of bitterness and grief that he's experienced over the past two decades? Or does he accept that finally, for the first time, possibly in his life, he has been shown grace and mercy? And I don't think that those are talked about enough in redemption stories, the concepts of grace and mercy. And in this case, Valjean is shown both of these by the priest. First, he's shown mercy and the fact that he doesn't tell the police, yep, this guy's a thief, take him away. That had been a really quick musical, and I really would have been bitter about the price I paid for those tickets if it ended <laughs> like that. Uh, roll credits. So he's shown mercy, but beyond that, he's shown grace. He is given the candlesticks. So not only am I giving you these, I am forgiving you, and I am telling you, take these, make a better life for yourself, be a better man, start anew. And Valjean... In the song that comes next, he realizes what he's become. He realizes what's been shown to him, and in a very powerful moment, he accepts them. He accepts the mercy and the grace that was shown to him, and he lets them change his story as only they can. And I looked at it as not only a great redemption story, but it also has a lot of parallels with being a salvation story. I think especially poignant on that is that the larger narrative of the book, this isn't a, a single um, a single action that's one and done. Valjean has to work on his life for the duration of his life. This isn't a, I'm good, I have that in the bank, and I can relax. <laughs> he, is, he is working on himself in several ways at several key junctures in his life. Uh, and it, it is, is a lifelong story. Yeah, redemption is a continual process, but that process is one that he takes other people with him because of his acceptance of grace and mercy and because of his continually trying to live that better life. He redeems Fantine by saving her daughter. Once again, once that grace and mercy was shown to him, he accepts it, he receives it, he accepts it, and he passes it on. This may or may not be a theme that I touch on in the devotional I wrote for Thy Kingdom Come. Uh, what, what was the name of that book again? Uh, Thy Geekdom Come, Volume 2. Okay, just wanted to make sure. By Mythos and Ink Press. And where can we buy that? On mythosandink.com or on Amazon. All right, just checking. I forgot. <laughs> Does that wrap it up for us on this? I mean, there's so many more that we could talk about, but I don't, don't know if anyone wants to listen to us for three solid hours. I, you don't want to edit it for I so If, I, if it's a three-hour long show, that means we probably were talking for five. Hi. Yeah. I want to listen to you guys for three and a half hours. Oh, we'll talk after the show. We'll talk after the show. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> Any final thoughts? I mean, too many, but I think that we've, I think that we're, do you know what? I will, I will say this as a, because we're talking about Valjean's life, last little stinger, you talk about the ongoing process in his life. I, I think it is interesting that in one of his later letters, the apostle Paul refers to the salvation journey as we who are being saved. And so he does not refer to it, at least in that book, in that tense, as a completed thing. But 
if we talk about our own redemption story, it is a story that is continually lived on and lived forward. Um, yeah. And I think that we can go a lot of places there. I just preached from James. So if you want to want to talk about, you know, being doers of the word, we can do that. But we're not going to do that right now. Yeah. <laughs> one final thought I want to give is one major reason that redemption stories resound so deeply with us is that many points in our lives, we all feel like we have messed up. We have done wrong. We have fallen short. And we're hoping to find our own redemption we want to atone. We want to be forgiven. Another quick point in media that really drove that home to me was in uh, one of the episodes of Matt Smith's run of Doctor Who. Uh, he got really excited that he got a a message uh, from another Time Lord. I found one, and it's one of the good ones. And he's trying to track down where the signal came from, and... And his companion, Amy, is like, wait a minute. Why are you so keen on finding other people? You told me what happened. You told me about the time war. You're not seeking a friend. You're looking for forgiveness. Hmm. And that brought the doctor up short. After a moment of silence, he looked at her and said, aren't we all? And I killed it. No, I think <laughs> that there's a moment between killing it and having a pregnant pause. Yeah. Um, I was like, maybe you should just go back and strike the stuff I said about we who are being saved and let that be the final, final thought without my thought getting in the way. But, you know, listen I, to it in the end. I liked your thought, too. Okay. Actually, I was thinking that mine was too verbose. No, I just wanted to say that episode was written by Neil Gaiman, and that makes me happy. Are you serious? <laughs> oh, my God. It's one of the best episodes in the entire series. Anyone disagrees with me, I will fight them. <laughs> This is a hill to die on. Yes, it is. I like don't blink, but. <laughs> Another great one. <laughs> but once again, we could go for five hours on Doctor Who. We need All to right. wrap the show up. All right. <laughs> then why don't we go to the zombie apocalypse strategy of the week? And this week has absolutely nothing to do with redeeming zombies because I'm just not going to cheapen it. I, I will cheapen <laughs> lots of things, but uh, even I have my limits. Uh, this week, uh, the zombie apocalypse strategy of the week is let something else bite you first. And if you really think about it, if you get bitten by a zombie, you're a zombie like all the time. If you get bitten by, you know, a werewolf, you only have to worry about that once a month. So, I mean, the math checks out. Just just get bitten <laughs> by the werewolf first. So, so we're going with the underworld prevention method. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> oh, no, no. OK, take the zombies. No, because if that works, then if they introduce zombies, then that means somewhere out there, there's going to be a vampire werewolf zombie hybrid. Oh, shh, quiet. <laughs> underworld will hear you. Well, on the plus side, if I employ that strategy, we'll finally find out the truth about the silver fillings. Oh, my gosh. That would be the joy. <laughs> now I killed you know, if they, if, they, <laughs> if If they ever did make a vampire zombie werewolf movie, I'm fairly sure that it will star Bruce Campbell. <laughs> well, it better. Okay, now I'm yes. <laughs> now, now I'm in. <laughs> Wait, can we get Bruce Campbell and David Harbour? I want to see them in the same movie. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know who that is. David Harbour was uh, Hopper in Stranger Things. Oh, well, yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. And, and then I, I say, that. killed it. 
as uh, Natasha's dad in uh, in Black Widow. <laughs> he was so good. <laughs> well, I think that that is going to wrap it up this episode. I want to thank you all for listening in. Uh, make sure you check us out online at geekatarms.com at facebook.com slash geekatarms. Mike, what's our Twitter? We are Arms Geek on Twitter. Download us through iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Give us a like. Leave us a review if you would, please. It really helps out the show. And, uh, of course, from Brian, Mike, and James, be safe, be blessed, and be geeky. And Ron Perlman, he should be in that movie, too. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's the perfect closer. No, it's <laughs> just like... <laughs> Thanks for listening to Geek at Arms. Music for this podcast was provided by Incompetech.com. For more, check us out at Facebook.com forward slash Geek at Arms. Give us a like and maybe even subscribe to us on iTunes. That would be awesome.